Take your Bibles. I want you to do something that's unusual this morning just for our... We're going to be in John 18, so obviously you can turn there. But we're also going to be in Hebrews chapter 5, just in the beginning. I want to show you what the Hebrew uh, writer of Hebrews wrote about our text uh, this morning. Hebrews 5. And then for the majority of our, our, our time will be in Matthew chapter 26. And I'll explain to you why. Typically... Uh, we've, of course, been in the Gospel of John now for well over a year and a half and preaching verse by verse. And uh, last week we were in John chapter 18, and I preached on the betrayal of Jesus. Uh, of course, Judas coming to the garden and, and, and physically betraying him with a garrison of soldiers. And we were there in John 18, and then in my studies, I, I, I feel like in John 18 there is a uh, uh, in verse 1, there's a mention of a garden. And I cannot help but get away from the garden. And uh, Matthew's gospel mentions way more about the Garden of Gethsemane than John's gospel. But if, uh, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to invite you in your Bible to come with me to the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, we were there last week and, and things took a drastic turn for Christ when 600 men along with Judas armed with swords and staves and spears, torches and lanterns, they come looking for Jesus to arrest Him. They leave Him there and Jesus of course is going to drink the cup of sorrow that He mentions uh, the cup the Father had given Him. How did Jesus have this perspective of going to the cross, as we sung just a moment ago, the power of the cross. He had us in mind. Where did he get this perspective from to die on a cross, to go through this and suffer his agony and uh, suffer pain and suffer uh, abandonment uh, all for us? These hours, I believe, we, we find uh, that Christ's human nature and his human will struggled in the divine will. We'll see that in Matthew and even Mark alludes to some things. But look in Hebrews 5, and we'll begin in verse number 7. This is about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But, but two particular verses that jumped out at me. In verse number 7 says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, was strong crying. This is what, again, alluding to the Garden of Gethsemane. Strong crying. Loud crying is what that means. And tears unto Him, the Father, that was able to save Him from death. So only the Father could have stopped what was about to happen. So Jesus cried loud, strong tears unto Him that was able to save Him from death and was heard in that He feared, though He were a Son, capital S-O-N, yet learned He obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, they were powerful verses. Jesus suffered. He cried. He was in anguish. He was abandoned. Hebrews 5, verses 7 and 8, show us a little glimpse of what Jesus was going through and experiencing. And I, I do not believe that you can appreciate this story unless you understand that we are going to view Jesus, the man, struggling in the garden. 
You say, well, Jesus struggled? Uh, Jesus, you mean Jesus, the one that could do anything? Jesus, the the one that could do all the miracles? Jesus, uh, God in the flesh? Yes, Jesus, God in the flesh, but Jesus, man, the Son of Man, God in the flesh, struggled in the garden. And as you have struggled, and as you have struggled in your garden of Gethsemane, the garden in which you go through, through the lens of Scripture, uh, we will see the the Son of Man tempted in all points and, and yet without sin. And we look and we learn and then we worship and we marvel this Lamb in the garden, the Lamb of God who became our sin and He took our sins upon Him and took away our sins, the sins of the world. I want to return to that lonely garden this morning And I want to show you what John did not record in John really 18. He did not allude to it. I'm not really sure why. He just mentions it in John 18. If you turn over there with me, in verse number 1, he kind of lists or mentions a garden. Look with me in John 18, in verse number 1, the Bible says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden. Look at that. There was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. Now, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 26, that's where we'll be the rest of our time. You will find this amplified account of Jesus in the garden in those lonely hours in Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. We'll begin in verse number 36. Matthew 26 and verse number 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane uh, means the place of pressure. Now keep that in your mind. It's a pressure. It's an olive press. There's olive trees around. They call them the witness trees. I've been to Israel twice, and we plan to go back next year with a group, and I, I hope that you can join us, and, and, uh, and we're, we're excited about that. But my most, I guess the most sacred spot, the most uh, favorite spot, if you will, that I get to go, and I feel like I'm just in the garden alone with God, is this place right here. Because it was the place of pressure. Do you realize that Jesus not only shed blood on Calvary, but Jesus shed blood in Gethsemane? I want you to get this picture in your mind. In Jerusalem, there was no gardens in the city limits, in the walls. There was no place for a garden. There's people everywhere. There's houses stacked on top, much like apartments that we would call today. Jerusalem was hustle and bustle, markets and, and, and different places. And so there would have been no place for a garden. Plus, uh, Jewish law would not have allowed manure or some type of fertilizer to be inside this holy city. And so uh, they had gardens on the outside of Jerusalem, but only the wealthy people was able to actually have a garden. Jesus no doubt had a friend who possibly had a garden where Jesus uh, sometimes would go when he was on his way to the Mount of, Olives, uh, Mount of Olives or maybe over to Bethany. Sometimes he would pass over that little brook Kidron and he would maybe go off into these olive trees and pray. He was very familiar with this place. 
And I believe that we see through his prayer how you handle a Gethsemane in your life. Can I say that you will have a Gethsemane in your life? There's going to be a place in your life that's a place of pressure. There's going to be a place in your life where you come where there's going to be sorrow and heaviness and there's going to be a burden and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to act. They're all, we're all going to have a Gethsemane in our life. So how do we handle a Gethsemane? I believe that Jesus shows us how to handle that. There's obviously prayer. Notice in verse 30. Six, it says, and then cometh Jesus with him unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith to the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. Go and pray. I, I'm headed to pray somewhere. I'm headed to go and 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 talk to my father. We see with him there's three friends. We see not only the agonizing prayer, but we see the inner recesses, the friends that are with him. Look at verse 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And they began to be, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. He began to be sorrowful and very heavy. It means that he began to be grieved and distressed. And listen, you think about this, when, when immediately when he falls into this place of pressure, along with these three disciples that he asked to come, uh, uh, a sorrow and a heaviness comes upon him. Why was his friends invited? Why did Jesus take three with him? Why did Jesus ask Peter, James, and John to go? Let me just give you some suggestions on maybe why Jesus asked these three men to go with him. Maybe it was to protect his privacy. Maybe Jesus wanted his privacy protected. He didn't want maybe anyone else to come in there, so he asked them to, uh, hey, guys, if you would just stay with me so no one else will come. This is a special time with my father. Maybe it was because of companionship. Jesus loved Peter, James, and John. These were the three what we call inner disciples and Jesus wanted them to be friends to the end. Maybe it was to instruct them. Maybe Jesus wanted to show these inner disciples the sorrow and the heaviness that he was about to uh, confront. Jesus was, as the Bible says, grieved, sorrowful, the King James Bible says in, uh, in the translation in verse 37, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And now don't forget this, Jesus Christ is not an actor. He's not trying to feel the part. He's not trying to feel human being and just, and just kind of go through the motions. Jesus Christ is feeling everything that a man could feel. All of the emotions, all of the heaviness, all of the sorrows, he is 100% human right here and 100% God. The second word in verse 37 is not only sorrowful but very heavy. That word very heavy, that phrase, it, it, it means distressed. So he's, he's distressed, he's overwhelmed with distress. It can be translated surrounded by sorrow. Why such agony? Why such heaviness? Why such pain? 
Well, look at verse number 38. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Why could it be that he was experiencing such sorrowful? The Bible even says in verse 38, unto death. Like, he may die. He may not even make it to the cross. I'm sure in his mind he's thinking, I'm so heavy. I'm so burdened. I'm so sorrowful. I may not even make it to Calvary. I'm under this place of pressure. Hey, that's what it says. Why could it be? Maybe because of betrayal? Jesus and his 12 disciples, one disciple turns out to be basically uh, possessed by Satan. And here he's coming just a few verses down in verse 47. He'll come with those soldiers and they're going to take him. And Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Maybe it's because of the coming desertion of the 11. As soon as Jesus is captured, what's the rest of the disciples do? They scatter. Jesus knew that they would scatter. Maybe it could be the denial of Peter, a man in whom he invested so much time and energy, and yet Peter would deny him not one time, not two times, but would deny him three times. Maybe it was because of the rejection of the nation of Israel. Israel rejected the Messiah. Israel did not want him. Matter of fact, when it came time uh, when he was uh, presented, whether it be Barabbas or Jesus, Israel as a nation said, we want Barabbas, crucify him. Jesus knew that he would be rejected. The injustice is all. The creator of justice himself was given such an injustice. Maybe it was so heavy. Maybe it was the coming loss of fellowship and intimacy with the Father because our sin was placed upon him. Maybe it's because he had the horror of the cross as we sung about it just a moment ago that he was despised and rejected and stripped and beaten and, and his beard plucked out and he was crucified and humiliated. All of these things and million times more Jesus was under that pressure just hours before his death. Now turn over with me to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14. Mark has something to say about this this encounter in Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14, and look with me in the latter part of that verse in verses 34 and verses 35. Mark chapter 14 and verses 34 in verse number 35. Again, we're dealing with Gethsemane. Jesus is agonizing in the garden. Look at verse 34. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little. Notice that phrase. He went forward a little. A few steps. And fell on the ground. And prayed that if it was possible, were possible, the hour might pass from him. The words, I want you to notice this in Mark 14. Notice that phrase, that he fell to the ground and prayed. That is, that is imperfect tense. And we know that famous painting, some of you may have it in your house, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's, he's praying and he's, he's got his hands kind of put together and there's some stone around him and he's looking up into heaven. Beautiful painting. I, I'm, I'm for you having the Jesus picture. Good. But that's not biblically correct. Jesus was not praying. He's 
agonizing as Hebrews chapter 5 says. He's crying loud, calling out to God with tears running down his face. He would get up and stagger and fall again. And then he would get up and he would stagger and he would fall again, praying under great pressure. He was not praying for his lunch. He was not praying before he went to bed. He was not just saying some little prayer. He's agonizing. He's walking just a little bit further and falling under great pressure and praying. You could read it. He fell to the ground and prayed. He got up. He went a little further and fell. He picked himself up, staggered a few more steps and fell and prayed to the Father. Look at the God-man in the garden of Gethsemane, staggering, falling, crying, staggering, falling, crying. Can you imagine this scene? Luke, you don't have to turn over there, but Luke chapter 22 and verse 44 says he was in such agony that he was praying very fervently that he began to, uh, began to uh, sweat Great drops of blood, and they began to fall on the ground. The medical community calls this hematidrosis. It is the bursting of capillaries underneath the surface of the skin. The clotting blood mixes with the sweat of a person under distress and and emerges to the skin very blood red. Jesus was under such... Pressure that his capillaries in his body and his veins were, were bursting and the sweat that he, was, uh, that he was sweating there in that humid Jerusalem air, he was sweating under great stress and great distress and the blood was mixing with that sweat and he was sweating drops of blood. What do you think about it? Jesus shed some blood in the garden too. Now, what did Jesus pray when he prayed in the garden? He's under, we see that he's under great pressure. We see that he's about to face the horrors of the cross. We see that his friends are there. What is Jesus praying in the garden? I want you to notice his opening statement. Look at Matthew chapter 26 again. Matthew 26, and, and we'll begin in verse 39. Notice what he says. The Bible says, and he went a little further and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, here's what he said, Oh, my Father, oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now look at verse 42. Skip down to verse 42. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, If this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. The phrase to underline in both prayers is my Father. Through all of the lonely experience that Christ has has experienced in the garden, he never lost his utter dependence on the Father. He cried out to the Father in the Aramaic, it is my Father, it literally is translated Abba. Abba Father, my Father, not translated Daddy. I've heard people try to make it Americanized and Daddy. That's what we call our dads in America, some Dad or Daddy. Nothing wrong with that, but hey, I'm not calling the Father Daddy. just doesn't sound right. But it's actually not right. 
He's Father. Abba, Father. Why is it so important for us to learn from this simple fact that Christ in this moment of, of, of pressure in the garden, it did not drive Him to ask, where are you anyway? Or, or you must not love me anymore. No, He actually in the garden is saying, my Father, I know you're mine. I still trust you as my Father. You haven't left me alone. My Father. He's my Father. Amen. I want you to notice his honest struggle. Look at verse 39 again. The Bible says he said, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, notice this phrase, let this cup pass from me. He says it a little further in verse 42. He said, let this, he said if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, or unless I drink it, thy will be done. Now remember, last week's message, we talked a little bit about the, the cup. The cup was a cup of suffering. It is a categorical term for Christ's suffering. Jesus was about to drink the betrayal, the crucifixion, the death, the abandonment, and that is God the Father would turn His back on His own Son, and, and the intimacy would be severed because He became sin for us. All of that was the cup. Do you know what it means to become sin? Have you ever thought about it? That Jesus became sin for us? What does that mean? How could we possibly fathom Jesus becoming sin for us who knew no sin? One writer by the name of Mark Mosley put it this way. Jesus will bear the sins of the embezzlers, gangsters, Bullies, rapists, molesters, liars, and indifferent, the sadistic, the self-righteous. It is a scene of unbearable horror, unspeakable madness. He is the accused for us all, bearing the weight of the abused children, families destroyed by adultery and apathy, civilizations decaying, wars ravaging victims. Yet through it all, deep in the terror of hell, he keeps his eyes wide open. He is not just a bystander caught in the accident. He has come deliberately. He will accept it all, absorbing the full force of this sin of wrath, the storm of wrath of His body and His mind and His heart and His soul until there is nothing left to feel. And finally, this tumbling of, uh, will slow a bit. The storm will slacken and Jesus will lift Himself from a nailed feet, uh, His nailed feet to snatch a gasp of air and force His swollen tongue to shout, It is finished! I've come, I've seen, I've paid, and I have felt. Is it any wonder that Christ staggered and fell and prayed under that great weight of our sin? The sin of the world. Think about how wicked our world is today. Think about how wicked our world has been. All of the Hitlers, all of the Mussolinis, all of the dictators of this world, all of the abortions and all of the things that have happened, all of the sin that has happened was placed upon Him. He did not pick and choose what sin He would die for. He did not pick and choose what sinner He would die for. He died for it all. 
But I want you to notice, and here's really the total submission. Look at verse 42. The last part, he said, Thy will be done. Let this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it. Thy will be done. In your garden, church, don't miss this. In the garden of your Gethsemane, that place of pressure, that place that will be sorrowful, that place that will be heavy, when you are surrounded by the sorrow and you are more likely to conform God's will to to your will, Jesus, the model man, surrenders his agony to the will of the Father. He says, it's not my will, but thy will. It was all about the Father's will. Here's the message. We see the experience of Gethsemane. There's three lessons that we can learn in this. Pastor, why did you... I mean, there's only one mention in John's gospel. Why did you pause and you you take us to Matthew and Mark and Luke and Hebrews... Every one of us is going to experience a personal Gethsemane. Oh, I don't think a Gethsemane is a loss of a job, although that's, that's, a, that's an aggravating circumstance. I don't think it's when your car breaks down or you have a flat tire. I don't think it's just when you have a bad day. I think a Gethsemane is a place where it's heaviness and sorrow. Cancer is diagnosed. A spouse is dead. A child has passed away. I read this week where a friend of mine in his church, a little 11-year-old boy, just suddenly died. And they said, pray for this family. And I thought to myself, what a, what a Gethsemane that that family has to go through. I've been to the bedside of some people in our church recently who have been diagnosed with cancer and I've watched them as they now have to come face to face with cancer, but now even thinking beyond cancer, like what if I don't make it? That's a Gethsemane. I've been to the graveside of maybe a parent who, who or some parents who have laid to rest a, a, a stillborn child or maybe a miscarriage. That's a, that's a Gethsemane. What do we learn through these Gethsemanes, these places of pressure? Number one, we realize that Gethsemanes are inevitable experiences of those who follow Jesus Christ. The world knows nothing of a Gethsemane. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't go through bad situations, but their perspective on things is not like ours, or at least it should be. Our Gethsemane, we have an example. We have an example in several books of the Bible to show us what Jesus, how did he respond to Gethsemane? So how should we, a follower of Jesus Christ, how should we respond when we're in a place of pressure? Well, the Philippian writer, Paul, he said this in chapter 3, in verse 10 of Philippians, he said that I may know him. And And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his... Suffering. They all that live godly shall suffer. We're going to suffer. 
as a follower of Jesus Christ, we will suffer. Hebrews told us in, in chapter 5 and verse 8 that Christ, he, he learned the obedience from the things in which He suffered. Jesus suffered. I believe that Gethsemane would not be so devastating if we were able to understand and accept that they are chisels in the hand of the Father to sculpture us into the image of His Son. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 is so taken out of context. And we know all things work together for good. Oh, we hear that all the time. People will even, people will even uh, message that to me and say, Pastor, well, you know, we had a flat tire, but we know all things work together for good and those different things. But they failed to put in verse 29. Why is that? Why will you quote verse 28 without, ver, uh, without verse 29? For, he, for, he, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be what? Conformed. Conformed into the image of his own son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What's the purpose of we know all things work together for good? is that we would be conformed into the image of His Son. What is the lesson in suffering? Church, don't miss this. What's the lesson in suffering? What's the lesson in Gethsemane? Is that the hand of the Father has that chisel and He's knocking off of us what does not look like Jesus Christ. And suffering the pressure the olive presses, when they would, and I've been to several of them, one in Nazareth and one in there uh, near um, uh, the Gethsemane, and uh, that olive press, would, they would go through that three times. Three times there was a pressure, and, and they would produce this olive oil. The olive oil that you use to cook with is a place of pressure that produced something so good and so wonderful was produced with such pain. How about this? Remember, intimacy with God does not erase the potential for pain. Intimacy with God does not erase the potential of pain. Fellowship with the Father does not help us avoid the garden, but it will help us walk through it. I'd hate to walk through Gethsemane without the Father. In fact, it is intimacy that transforms the garden into a classroom. The garden actually becomes a classroom. It's called the school of suffering. Boys and girls... Let's have a seat in the school of suffering. Oh, nobody likes that school. Oh, nobody wants to graduate from the school of suffering. Nobody's walking across the platform, grabbing a diploma and turning their tassel and waving at the crowd and everybody's cheering. No, 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 not this school. This school is a place of suffering. I'll tell you somebody that knows about this school or knew about this school a man by the name of Ron Hamilton, a man who lost an eye to cancer, 
who was known around the country as a musician and a gifted singer and songwriter, known as Patch the Pirate. But he wrote this song shortly after his ordeal with cancer. And it says this, Now I can see testings come from above. God strengthens His children and purges in love. My Father knows best and I trust in His care. Through purging, more fruit will I bear. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistakes. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. The purpose of testings, the purpose of suffering, the purpose of pressure is I shall come forth as gold. I can lay it down at the Father's feet. Anything that has come my way, I know that He's there. Remember, intimacy with God does not erase the potential of pain. Here's lastly, recognize, listen, don't miss this, recognize that close friends can be assuring or reassuring, but cannot be replacements for the Father. Can I show you something? I've read this story and these stories many times, but just recently, this jumped out at me And I could not help but write it down. Turn with me to Matthew 26 if you're not already there. And look with me in verse number 40. Now now remember, these are are some of Christ's closest friends, His associates. These are His disciples, His followers. But the closest ones, not just His disciples, these are the closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. The closest friends on earth to Jesus were these men. Look at verse 40. And he cometh unto his disciples, the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? You couldn't watch with me one... Look at verse 41. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now look at verse 43. And he came and found them asleep... Again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. He comes back, verse 45, and he he comes to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. I've read this passage as I said and I've read it over and over. I've read about the facts of Gethsemane and and there's several things that have stood out to me but really this had never stood out to me like it had in recent days. That Jesus had taken friends and when Jesus needed them the most they slept. They caught on some much-needed nap. And, and so I, I wrote this down because the Lord had just given this thought to me, and, and here it is. 
One of the ways you will know that you are experiencing a Gethsemane is the fact that no one, not a husband, not a wife, not a father, not a mother, not a friend, not an associate, no one will understand your Gethsemane. No one. Oh, pastor, not even my wife. Not even your wife. You mean my, my, my own husband? Pastor, would, I mean the one that I've... Holy matrimony, we've been married, we, we're together, we're one flesh, not even my, my own husband would understand my Gethsemane. Hey, when it is serious enough and it's a place of pressure enough, not even the ones closest to you will understand what you are going through. But there is one. Because he's already been there. His name is Jesus. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus knows exactly what it is like. And his message to you is this. I understand and so does my Father. He understands. And by the way, he cares. Casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Pastor, no one seems to understand. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that statement come out of the mouth of a Christian. Pastor, no one understands. And guess what? You're right. No one does. But there is one in heaven that does. He understands. In the garden when Jesus looked into his grave and he saw the agony of the cup that he was about to drink from, he said, oh my father, thy will be done. And just what Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 7 foretold that he would be uh, brought as a lamb to the slaughter. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, he opened not his mouth, never said a word. Why? From that moment forward, with no sound of recoil, no sound of recanning, no sound of hesitation, he walks forward, he faces the cross, he was on that journey, that journey started, uh, but when he hit his feet there in Jordan and, and John the Baptist baptized him, he set his face toward Calvary like a flint, and everything that Jesus did had you and I in mind. But especially Gethsemane. The Lamb has shown us how to walk through Gethsemane. Oh, in your mind, I hope today that you will go to Gethsemane and in your mind you will think about what Jesus did, how He fell and how He prayed, how He fell and how He prayed, how He sweat great drops of blood and He did it all for us. But guess what? To be an example. I don't know if you've ever had a Gethsemane or not but you'll know it. Nobody wants it. I don't want you to have it. I don't want a Gethsemane. I've been there a few times. I don't, I don't want that. Nobody likes to talk about their Gethsemane. I don't see Jesus announcing the Gethsemane moment. I don't think that he's putting it out on Facebook and tweeting about it, snapping. Jesus is there with just his friends. And even they would not stay with him like they should have. When everyone walks out, that's when Jesus walks in. 
Oh, I have some dear friends. Listen, I have some wonderful friends in my life. I have some wonderful preacher friends. I've been blessed to call them my friend for years and share deep interest with them and and deep conversations with them, things that you can share with a friend, concerns and burdens and, and praying with one another. We're friends. But we've never had a friend like him. I beg of you today, as we looked, as we did last week, into the tribute of the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was betrayed, the Lamb that's in Gethsemane under pressure. I pray that you today will be encouraged, motivated, stirred, to have that deeper relationship Not with a friend, but with the friend. Some of you tell your friends everything, and some of you have some dear friends, and I thank God for that. You go out to eat with them, you call them, you text them every day, and your friends, hey, listen, that's wonderful. What a blessing it is to have a friend. But you'll go days without speaking to the greatest friend. I'm going to tell you right now, I've saw some people that was my friend before that It's unfortunate, but they're no longer my friend. Some, I'm sure, what I've done. I hate it. Maybe I've done something. I'm sure there's been things that's been misunderstood and a friendship was severed. That's how we are. Sin is just sinful. We used to be close to somebody. We've all said that. Man, I used to be close to that guy. I'm no longer close to them. And we just, you know, things are just the way it is. May we never say that of Jesus Christ. May we never say, boy, I used to, I remember the times I used to get in, pray with Jesus and talk to him. And I used to read the word and fellowship. And oh, I I had such sweet fellowship with the Lord, but it's not like that anymore. Well, it ain't that he did anything wrong. What is it that we've done? Where's that fellowship need to be? Listen, everyone has a Gethsemane. I remember when I was a child, my dad, uh, growing up, my dad would, uh, we listened to cassette tapes. Kids, I know you don't know what a cassette tape is, but we had cassette tapes laying around the house. And my dad had a cassette tape. It was, it was white and on the, on the, on the, looked like a Sharpie marker or some type of uh, black marker. He put on there the Roloff Holmes. How many of you know the Roloff Homes? And, uh, and uh, I got threatened to go there a few times by my dad. Uh, I'm going to send you to Roloffs is what he used to say. And uh, but anyway, uh, he uh, would basically Roloff, uh, Lester Roloff was his name. He would take these uh, uh, very bad situations, men and women. It was really men and women, not boys and girls. Men and women that were drug addicted and messed up. He would take them and try to help them and and all that, so a good thing. But then uh, there were some that stayed, and they would sing. So he started like quartets and choirs, and it was a long time ago. And and but I remember my dad had a cassette tape of the roll off men or, or women. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they had a song on there about Gethsemane. And here's the title of the song. And now this has been I was probably, and I'm not exaggerating, maybe seven or eight years old. But the title of the song was, Have You Had Your Gethsemane? 
I never understood that song. I'm like, what are they talking about? Have you had your, have you had your Gethsemane? And then the next line, and that's all I can remember of the song, the next line says this, have you prayed the night through? Now there's a reason that that has stood decades. Have you had your Gethsemane? Have you prayed the night through? That's a great question. Have you ever been to a place where you've had to pray? You didn't know what else to do. Have you had your Gethsemane?